reading of God's Word this evening. We're going to look at verses 10 and 11, and that will springboard us into much other things we'll look at in the rest of the chapter. The Bible says, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, Behold, there were... Were there no there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? And the Bible study tonight is entitled this, Bringing Chaos into Order. Bringing Chaos into Order. Let's pray. God, I pray tonight as we look at this second half of the book of Exodus, we understand, God, that you're a God of order and that our sin nature seems to take us toward disorder. Uh, Lord, Satan wants to take us toward chaos. And God, uh, you are the master of being able to take chaos and make something beautiful out of it anyway. But Lord, that uh, you have given us your book, and you've given us your laws to help bring chaos into order. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that you'd help us, uh, re- help remind us of that. And Lord, imprint those things on our minds and on our hearts as we listen. And God, I pray that as with every uh, sermon that, Lord, where there is change that needs to be made that will better our lives and better the quality of our lives, may we be quick to make those changes. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Have you ever felt as though your life was just full of chaos? You ever felt that way? Um, you wake up in the morning, your head's spinning with problems, and you walk out the door and problems hit you in the face, and you... Uh, you get on 95 and more problems, right? And then you, you get to work and your boss is cussing at you and there's more problems. And you come home and your spouse is upset with you, more problems. And you turn on the evening news and there's more problems. And uh, you um, uh, pick up your phone and you look flip down through your social network feed and more problems. And man, it's just a problem-filled chaotic world out there. There's all kinds of problems that can, uh, chaos that can seem to hit us. Financial chaos can seem to get us, can't it? The loss of a job or an unexpected bill. How many of you here uh, at some point in your adult life have ever gotten a bill in the mail and you're like, good night, where did that come from? Ever happened to anybody? I got, I got one of those in the mail not, not all that long ago. Like I, I, I think I shared in church some time back that I'd gotten gone to the hospital in college, and they got one digit wrong off my insurance card, and the bill followed me like three years later, four years later, and caught up to me and pulled my credit down in the mud. And look, those things happen to us from time to time, don't they? Uh, can take our finances, our well-thought-out planned finances, and just bring chaos in. How about when your outgo is greater than your income? That's a problem, isn't it? You got more money going out than you do coming in. Uh, I don't know what they said the average American is in credit card debt, but it's some astronomically high number. How about when you have a credit card company that won't stop harassing you for their money because you're late on a bill or you're late on a payment or uh, I hope you're not there. Uh, hopefully most of you have gotten to a point in life where that doesn't happen. But look, all of us at some point have probably been there at some point. And if not all of us, most of us have been but financial chaos, where the and let me just say up front that a lot of the chaos that hits us in life, it's self-inflicted, isn't it? It's 
self-inflicted. Now, not all of it, but a lot of it is. It's self-inflicted. We were not prudent enough to foresee and prepare. How about emotional chaos? Major life changes. Uh, you, uh, you're going through any sort of a major life change, and you can insert whatever you want to in there. The buying and selling of a home, the moving from uh, one area to another. Uh, my wife and I know a little bit about that. I think I shared we've moved like six or seven times in ten years um, from different houses. Uh, all of the major life changes, the having of a child, the loss of a parent, or the loss of a relative uh, to death, um, any of these major life changes can take our emotions and just toss them up in the air, and it can feel like we're just uh, in some sort of emotional chaos has just struck us. How about relational chaos? You have a leader in your life that just totally lets you down and drops the ball and and does something that deeply disappoints you. That can bring about relational chaos. How about loved one failures, whether it's uh, the sudden change of behavior in a child or an adult child that isn't living up to the way that you raised them or uh, maybe a marriage that's gone uh, sideways or uh, just a relationship with a, uh, an adult child or a parent that's gone off uh, 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 strange. That can bring chaos. That can bring chaos in our life. For those of you in here that may not be married, if you break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, boy, that can bring chaos in your life. Uh, how about when your enemies are attacking you? Anybody in here ever have that happen? Your enemies. Who are your enemies? Well, we're not supposed to have any enemies. Why? Because we're supposed to love our enemies. Matthew 5.44 Go look it up and read it and memorize it if you struggle with that. You're supposed to love your enemies. You say, Pastor, how do you know the reference off the top of your head? Because I've struggled with it, and I've had to go memorize the verse. Uh, uh, if someone is an enemy to you, you're not to allow them to become your enemy. You're to love them. But nevertheless, when people are attacking you, whether it's because they're envious uh, or for whatever reason, they have misinterpreted something that's happened, that can bring chaos into our lives. I would say this tonight is that some of you are in a spot where none of this directly affects you, but can we take a look at the political landscape of our country, and can we see that we've got chaos in our country? Have you seen all the rioting that goes on in the streets? The burning of cars, the smashing of car windows, the chaos that's around us? Do you know that none of that chaos existed before sin? But chaos, chaos, I would say here that tonight that all of us are either directly affected, I'm talking about at this moment, directly affected or indirectly affected by some sort of a chaotic mess in this world. Whether it's, uh, uh, whether it's uh, those things that I mentioned that have directly affected you or just the country and the society and the world around us at large, there is chaos let us never forget that chaos comes about by disorder. And God loves things done in order. Satan loves things done out of order. So God will have a, a system in place, and God is an orderly, systematic God. And he wants you to follow this system, this setup, and Satan does not want you to follow a system and setup. He wants you to throw it to the wind, and he wants all of that to get messed up. I believe that chaos or disorder in one's life is a result of 
sin. Sin. Just as the Israelites needed God to structure them in order to eliminate their chaos, we've got to turn to God in chaotic times so that we can call, that He can calm us and bring us to a place of peace. Think about the verses we read there. The Israelites, boxed in, rock on one side, rock on the other side, Red Sea in front of them. They're thinking, oh, this idiot Moses, leader of ours, uh, he walked us right out of uh, the, the, the Egypt, right out of slavery. He walked us right down a dead-end road. And I preached on this some time back, but God told him to take them there. And they're thinking to themselves, this Moses, he's incompetent. This is the guy that's going to lead us. And then they turn around and look, and here come the Egyptians. They're boxed in. Chaos. Chaos. Tonight we're going to look at four thoughts on this topic of bringing Chaos into order. We're going to see how the last half of Exodus, uh, uh, how it's structured and what God has with it here. Number one, notice the cause of the chaos. Look down in chapter 15 of Exodus, of Exodus, chapter 15, Exodus 15, verses 23 and 24. So obviously God delivers them from their enemies there. We know about that. Opens the Red Sea. Listen, if you're alive today and you're an adult, you know about the Red Sea story. Marches them through, brings the Egyptians in, closes the water on them. The enemy dies. They sing and rejoice on the other side. You think, wow, God just split the Red Sea in half. He can do anything. Then they get right down the road and we come to verse 23. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. Meaning bitter. And the people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Look at chapter 16 and verse 2. Again, we're looking at the cause of the chaos. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So chapter 15, they gripe. They murmur. Chapter 16, they gripe. They murmur. Look at chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. And by the way, every time they murmur... They end up getting their way. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there. If you have a child that's murmuring and complaining, don't give them their way. Because it just enables them to keep murmuring and complaining. Now, God didn't have a choice. He had to give their, his people water to drink. But if you have a choice, don't give in. Don't give in. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys, uh, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore, the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said uh, unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? If you read through the, the book of Exodus, you will see this same pattern continues. They get to a spot, they don't immediately have what they want, so they turn and they murmur and they complain. Let me ask you tonight, what should have they done when they came to the place they did not have what they needed? What should have they done? Someone someone tell me here. They should have prayed, right? Should have gotten down on their knees and said, Lord, we don't have, we need, please provide. Isn't that supposed to be how it works? Now, the order isn't gripe and complain and get your way. The order is stop, humble your heart before an all-powerful God, see that He's mighty and capable, get down on your knees and say, God, I have this need, will you please provide? And wait, like we talked about Sunday, wait for Him to provide. He will in His timing and in His way, and then it will be marvelous in our eyes. 
That's not what they did. They murmured and they murmured and they murmured and they murmured. And it created more and more and more chaos. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, we find where the Bible says this, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies, envies and all evil speakings. What's the idea there? That we're to lay those things aside. We're to get rid of them. It might be in your nature to want to complain about this and complain about that. I just have to say, as American citizens, uh, we are some of the most spoiled people that have ever lived in the history of mankind. Do you understand that if you go down into government-subsidized housing, that where those people live in government-subsidized housing, there are kings in medieval times that would have given up all their wealth to be able to live in one of those homes. Running water, plumbing, electricity, all the, all the computers and all the things, cable TV, HD TVs, all the things that are inside of a many government subsidized houses. We have it made, folks. We've got nothing to complain about. Let me just say this as well is that you might come in here today and you have a little ache and a pain. And listen, we'll put you on our prayer list and we'll pray for you. But do you know that you don't have a right to live pain-free? That's not one of the rights that God has guaranteed us. Sometimes God wants us to suffer with an affliction. And that's given to us on purpose. Because He is glorified in our infirmities. He's glorified in those things. The cause of the chaos is sin. Number two, notice the creation of the law. When Israel was in bondage, they lived under the law of the Egyptians. Now they had been freed, they needed a new law. They needed their own law. Because of their sinful natures, they needed a governing constitution, per se, that would cover every aspect of their lives. So, as you read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and you read through all the laws that were given, you need to be understanding up front that God was taking His nation... His people that he had handpicked, and he was giving them a governing law to govern, govern every aspect of their life. Now, we have our own civil laws. We'll get into this deeper in a minute. We have our own civil laws, and we have our own system of government, but they had no system of government. Other than Moses being in charge, they had no system of government. So God was coming down and helping Moses to put together, per se, the constitution for the nation of Israel. There was a constitutional convention. It consisted of Moses and God. And God told Moses what to write down. And that was it. And i got to say, that's the best constitutional convention that you can ever have. Well, let me give you the four categories here. We'll give them to you one at a time uh, that, to, to categorize the law. Letter A, you'll see dietary laws. Dietary laws. Look at Leviticus chapter 11 with me. I know we're going through Exodus, but let me give you an example of a dietary law. Turn to Leviticus chapter 11. Hold your place in Exodus. We'll be obviously be back there as we're doing a study through Exodus tonight. But Leviticus chapter 11, 1, 2, and 3, we see God telling them what they could and could not eat. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, These are the beasts which ye shall eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. Whatsoever parteth the hoof and is cloven-footed, and cheweth the cud among the beasts, that shall ye eat. That shall ye eat. So God was very specific in telling them they are to eat a specific kind of meat. And there was a specific kind of meat 
that they were not supposed to eat. Why? And again, I don't know all the reasons. We get to heaven, maybe God will or won't explain them to us, depending on whether or not he thinks we need to know. Uh, but part of it could have been a lack of refrigeration during that time. Some of the animals that were on the not uh, the list that are not, were not supposed to eat were unclean animals in that it would have gotten them sick. There were parasites involved. And now that we have proper cooking methods, maybe they didn't have, uh, those things don't affect us. By the way, with the dietary laws, these were done away with in Acts chapter 10. God directly told Peter that he could eat of any animal, any animal. So the dietary laws do not apply to us today. You ever have anybody come to you and say, well, the Bible says you're only supposed to eat this kind of meat and, and you're not obeying that. You're handpicking what you want to obey. The answer is simple. God said in Acts in the New Testament, he did away with dietary laws. Letter B would be civil laws. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 18. We'll look at an example of civil laws. Exodus chapter 18 Verse 23 through 26, we see here how God structured government, government around his people. It says there in verse 23, if thou shalt do this thing, and God commanded thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure in all this people uh, shall also go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they judged the people in all seasons, uh, at all seasons, the hard causes they brought unto Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. So uh, Moses was sitting, the backstory here, Moses is sitting there, and all the people outside of his sin, all the people are coming to them with their problems. And Moses is having to answer all these little disputes amongst the people, uh, uh, lawsuits, you could say, between the people. And he's just morning to night, he's wearing himself out. And his father-in-law comes along and says, Moses, what are you doing? This is chaotic. You you need a better structure here. And so uh, he wisely instructs Moses, take men and put them in charge of thousands, and then take men and put them in charge of hundreds, all the way down to groups of tens. And then if somebody has a problem, they can go to the leader of the ten. And then if that doesn't resolve it, it can be appealed up to the hundred, and then up to the thousand. And then the big matters, they can come to you. And boy, did that cut down on Moses' uh, workload. Why? Because there were... There was a system of government in place. Can I tell you tonight that God endorses civil governments all throughout the Bible? You may look at our system of government and think that it's broken. And I would say in many ways, it's broken. It's broken. But it's not near as broken as it was in Jesus' day. You had Nero in charge. You had, rather, Caesar in charge. You had the Roman Empire. And they were, they were, it, it was awful. It, it was much less ethical than our country is. And the, uh, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, uh, uh, what should we do about taxes? And Jesus said, bring me the tribute money. And they brought him the tribute money, held it up, and he said, whose inscription is that? And they said, Caesar. And what did he say? Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. And unto God the things that are God's. What did he say? I support government. I support government. Romans chapter 13. We won't turn there tonight. But Romans chapter 13. The Bible teaches us that God allows and respects various forms of civil government. In fact, the language there is very strong. It says in Romans 13 that they are ordained of God and they are ministers of God. And so if in the White House is somebody that you don't like now or... 
uh, maybe there was somebody in the, in the White House in the last term you didn't like. They, those people are ministers of God. You might say, well, they're godless. They very well may be, but God has put, chosen them and put them there. And God, uh, God wanted them there for a specific reason and cause. And I would tell you this, get your nose out of, uh, out of the newspapers, get your eyeballs off the television for just a minute, and back away from it and look at the Bible as a whole and see how God used secular, godless civil authorities to accomplish His purpose over and over and over again. And understand that He can still do that today. He still does that today. What is your role? Your role is to obey the laws that are on the books unless they are directly telling you to disobey the Bible. You always obey the authority in your life. Always. Unless the authority is out of line with God. If it is a neutral issue, then you obey. You say, well, I don't agree with it. It doesn't matter. God says that the government that's in place is to be followed and obeyed. And so in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God is trying to take the chaos, the chaotic Israelites, and he's trying to hone them in and bring them in to order. So he's creating these laws in order to bring, uh, in order to bring order to chaos. Letter uh, C, we see sacrificial laws. Turn with me over to Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29 and verse 10. So you've got dietary laws, yet civil laws. Let us see, we see sacrificial laws. The Bible says there, And thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation, and Aaron and his sons shall put their head, their hands rather, upon the head of the bullock. Thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and thou shalt take the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger, and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. And again, you can turn over to Leviticus at another time and study out all the the, um, the particulars of the laws. They're really spelled out in great detail in the first several chapters of Leviticus. We get uh, some instruction here in Exodus, but you have the sacrificial laws. Sacrificial laws were put in place as to be a visual reminder of the coming Messiah. The bullocks and the lambs that were sacrificed were meant to represent who? The Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And so that was their, that was, uh, that, th- those were their ordinances to remind them. And, uh, the Lamb of God one day would come and eradicate the sin of all mankind. Now why is it that the sacrificial laws have, be done, have been done away with? You might remember Jesus when he died on the cross. There was an earthquake, right? And what happened to the curtain? It torn in two from what? From top to bottom. God literally reached down. This is awesome. God reached down from heaven and he grabbed this thick veil from the top and he ripped it in half. And he said, no more sacrifice needed. The sacrifice of all sacrifices has has died. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has come. He's hung on the cross. He has completed the, the era of sacrifices. Now there is no more need for animal sacrifice. We move into a new era. What is that? Living sacrifices. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? 
Does that mean we take a, now we take a lamb and we put him up on the altar and we go through the, all the rituals, but we don't actually kill it and then we let him go? No, that's not what it means. Living sacrifice is that you and I are to sacrifice the desires of our flesh so that we can effectively love the one back who loved us by buying us through his death, burial, and resurrection. I would say tonight that the sacrificial laws are gone in the sense of all the, all the technicalities of the brazen altar and, and the, the, the lambs and the goats and all that. But the sacrificial laws aren't gone in that Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that we are to be a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. And then it says this, it's our reasonable service. But the fourth type of law God gave the Israelites was the moral law. The moral law. Look down with me at uh, Exodus chapter 20. And by the way, the Ten Commandments, are we're going to use them here. They're used regularly, but the moral law doesn't begin and end with the Ten Commandments. There are a whole lot more moral laws in the Bible. Look with me at verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Verse 6. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Be very, very careful about taking God's name in vain. Be very, very careful about loose language when it comes to God's name. I would say this. You're better off not using terms like, oh my gosh. Because that's very close to saying, taking God's name in vain. You say, but pastor, it's not actually. It's really close. I would even be careful, and I'm not telling you not to. I'm just saying I personally don't use terms like gee whiz. Because to me, that's really close to taking God's name in vain. And I don't want to push the envelope where God says he's not going to hold me guiltless. Woo, that's a strong admonition. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold him guiltless to take my name in vain. And so be very, very careful. You say, well, pastor, you just use those in the pulpit. They're not in vain because I'm instructing you not to do it. So they're not in vain. Amen. Verse, um, verse eight there. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay. Skip down to verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother that thou, uh, that they, thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet the neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservants, nor his maidservants, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And so uh, God gave them very, very clear uh, moral law and said, don't do these things. And by the way, God would expound deeper and further as to what would happen to someone that coveted or committed adultery. What were the consequences of breaking God's moral law? I'll say this, they were more severe in the Old Testament than they are in the New Testament. One possibility for this may have been God's quick establishment of right and wrong. Now, I've used this before, but we'll just quickly uh, throw it out here again. If you were caught disrespecting your parents, and it was severe enough, you were drugged to the edge of town, and you were stoned to death. My hand is up on this. How many of you would have been stoned to death? You're sitting next to a child, and that's not telling the truth. You can raise your hand for them, right? Um, why was why were the consequences so severe? And people will read the Old Testament and kind of scratch their head at what? You're caught committing adultery. 
caught in the act of adultery. You're drug out and you're stoned. That's rough. That's, that's intense. Why? Well, I would say that one possibility is that God was trying to quickly establish right and wrong amongst the chaotic people. Let's stop and have some historical perspective here. These people were out of control. Joshua, or rather Moses, Joshua comes down off the mountain from getting the Ten Commandments. They had just seen God in the storm and they're down there dancing naked or almost naked around a golden calf that they had made and they're bowing down to being lewd and being wrong and music that sounded awful and these people were out of control and God said, listen, if you're not going to follow my law, you're going to die. It got their attention. I know uh, I, I've done the substitute teacher thing some. Walked into a class and the teacher normally didn't have control and I wanted to come in and establish control. What did I do? I came down and I set down the law, the rules, and I was really hard on the first student that broke the law. And here you see God saying, okay, here are the rules. You don't want to follow them. You're going to die. Number two, God's feeling, or let me just say this underneath letter D, God's feeling toward his moral laws do not change. He is immutable. He does not change. I would challenge you to go through your Bible, and anywhere in the Old Testament you see that God says something is an abomination unto him, it's still an abomination unto him. He's immutable. He doesn't change. My, um, uh, well, I'll be a little more discreet. I'll be more careful. Somebody I know, which is thousands of people, amen? Somebody I know told me, they said, if it's not repeated in the New Testament, then it doesn't apply to me today. And I said, you better be really careful about that. You better be really careful with that position. If God does not say, unless God directly says, like with the dietary laws, unless God directly says it doesn't apply anymore, it still applies. And you better, you're better off just living your life with that in mind. By the way, the, uh, uh, the long-term punishment for breaking God's moral law is still the same, even though we've moved into a new era. You may remember Jesus came onto the scene and he was, he was bringing in the era of grace and changing over from law to grace. The Pharisees are all about the law, all about the enforcement of the consequences of the law. Jesus came in saying, let's enforce grace. You might remember the lady that was caught in adultery. They drag her out. By the way, she was probably framed. Probably framed. How would you know... How would you catch her in the act unless you knew to look for it? They caught her and they drag her to Jesus' feet. And they throw her down in front of him and say, Moses says she deserves to be stoned. What say ye? He ignores them. He, he bends down and starts writing in the sand. Hey, what, 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 what do you say? Jesus said, he that is without sin cast the first stone. Then he bent down and started writing in the sand. I would love to know what he wrote in the sand. You know, I, I have speculated that maybe he began to write their names and some of the sins they had committed. And oh, they began to drop their stones and walk away. Jesus stood up and he said, where, where are thy accusers? She said, they're gone. He said, well, neither do I accuse any. He said this, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. He told her, he said, I'm not going to have you stoned. But you better have learned your lesson. Can I say that while the moral consequences have changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, 
the long-term consequences of hellfire have not changed. Furthermore, let me say this, and I would recommend writing this down if you're taking notes tonight. Grace requests a higher standard than the law requires. Grace requests a higher standard than the law requires. Grace says, thou shalt not, or rather the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Grace says, don't even look on a woman to last after in your heart. God has raised the standard. He may have removed the, the earthly consequences, but he's raised the standard. The law says, thou shalt not murder. Grace says, you're not even to uh, hate your brother, because that's murder in God's sight. So God has raised the bar with grace. Number three, we see the classifications of the moral law. And I've got to move quick here. The classifications of the moral law. Commandments 1 through 4, we see our relationship with God. Commandments 5 through 10, letter B, we see our relationship with others. Matthew chapter 22, I'll read this to you quickly. 36 through 40, 40, we find where the Bible says, Master, this is a lawyer asking Jesus, Master, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, Then and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great, great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as, as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. What's that mean? Commandments 1 through 4 deal with our relationship with God. Commandments 5 through, th- 5 through 10 deal with our relationship with others. Here's how, here's how we can look at this. There's two ways to look at the laws in the Bible. You can look at, you can look at them through the scope or the prism of laws and hard and rigid. You gotta do this and this and this. Or you can come over here in the New Testament and you can look at them through the, through the, through the lenses of love. If I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I'm going to have no problem having no other gods before me. I'm going to have no problem not making unto me a, a graven image. I'm going to have no problem uh, remembering the Sabbath day or, or setting a day apart of rest. I'm going to have no problem not taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Over here, if I am going to uh, l- uh, look through the lenses of love, I have no problem not committing adultery or stealing or killing. Why? Because I love others the way God wants me to love them. And so all the moral laws hang on these two principles. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you'll do that God's way, you'll have no problem keeping the moral law. If you struggle with loving yourself more than God or others, then you're going to be pushing the edge, and that's where chaos begins. Number four, we see the centrality of God's presence. Again, this is a study of uh, the book of Exodus. Listen, we could spend weeks diving into Exodus 25, 26, and 27 but this is meant to be a bird's eye view of the book. The centrality of God's presence. That lays out God's structure of how he wanted his presence to be felt in the very center of his people. You ever look at the structure or the layout of the tabernacle and the way the people were structured around the tabernacle. What you'll see is that the tabernacle was to the layout of the people where the heart is in our bodies. Dead in the center of the people. And God's presence would come down and fill that tabernacle just the way that God's presence is supposed to come down and fill you. Fill you. What is your heart? It is the seat of your emotions. It is your thoughts. It is your emotions. It is, it is who you are. That's what your heart is. And I would ask this. Is God at the center of that or are you at the center of that? 
oftentimes when I pray, when I talk to the Lord, I'll say to him, I'll say, Lately, Lord, lately, Lord, I have sat on the throne of my heart, and I don't want to be there anymore. I'm kicking myself off, and I'm asking you to sit on the throne of my heart. Will you rule and reign my thoughts, my desires, my actions? I want him to be at the center, not me, him. And I hope that you want the same thing. Listen, can we just be honest with each other tonight? Can we just be transparent with each other? It is a struggle for everybody in this room, everybody in this room, to have him always in charge. He ought to be at the center of everything we think and do. If you're looking for a place to study in your Bible over the days and weeks to come, I would encourage you to study Exodus 25, 26, and 27 about the tabernacle. How do you bring chaos into order? Well, you embrace the laws of God instead of bucking them. The more you buck God's laws, the harder your life's going to be. The more you embrace them, the easier it gets. But you've got to do it through the scope of love. I'm reminded, corporately I'm reminded of Psalm 33:12. Blessed is the nation whose God is Lord. As a country, if we'll get to back to a place where we honor God, and we love others God's way, we'll be blessed as a nation. But if we can't, then we won't. Individually, I'm reminded of Matthew 7, 24, 25, and 26. It says this, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which buildeth his house upon a rock. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. What is that rock? That rock is order. That rock is Jesus Christ. When you do things his way, let the rains and winds blow. Let chaos from other people's sin fall on your house. It's going to stand because your life is built on the rock. Tonight I'd ask you this. Where have you been building the foundation of your life? On sand from being selfish or on the rock from letting God be in control? Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this evening.